Max Lawton is a translator, novelist and a musician. He received his BA in Russian literature and culture from Columbia University and uh, his MPhil from Queens College, Oxford, where he wrote a dissertation comparing French writer Céline and uh, Dostoevsky. He has translated many books by Vladimir Sorokin and is currently translating works by Antonio Moresco, Michael Lenz and uh, Céline. He is writing his doctoral dissertation on phenomenology and uh, the 20th century novel at uh, Columbia University where he also teaches Russian. He translates from French, Russian, Italian, German, Spanish and Turkish into English. Max is also the author of a novel and uh, two collections of uh, short stories currently awaiting publication. He is a member of four heavy music groups. In this episode, he spoke about uh, his love for reading, about uh, transgressive literature, Russian author Sorokin and his upcoming translations. Thank you for accepting our invite, Max. Thank you. Thank you for having me. To begin with, uh, tell us about uh, your journey as a reader. Yeah, as a reader, I think I started out being entranced by books I couldn't understand, which probably makes a lot of sense. So I remember when I was, I, I think I tried to read Gravity's Rainbow in middle school and secondary school, which was way too young. <laughs> and I think I just ran my eyes across the words, as they say. So I, I really liked horror novels when I was a little bit younger than that. I loved Stephen King. I liked Clive Barker. I liked Cirque de Freak, this really bad series about a, a kid who's turned into a vampire and then jo joins a traveling freak show. But then, like growing up, I very quickly wanted to move on from that stuff to stuff that was way too difficult. So like I heard someone talking about Ulysses on the radio when my parents were listening to NPR. I got a copy of Ulysses and then I went, what? I can't possibly read this. This is much, much too difficult. So I think it was like I like things that were a little bit inappropriate or transgressive. So like Fight Club, I liked a lot. Chuck Palahniuk. And then Brett Easton Ellis. I was actually just on his podcast. I loved his books very much, especially because I wasn't really allowed to read them. So for example, I, I remember checking out Train Spotting. But train spotting. I checked it out from the public library and hid it under my bed. <laughs> and I would just take it out and read 10 pages and my parents went around and hide it back under my bed. So I think I always liked things that were difficult and inappropriate simultaneously. I think that was my journey as a reader, which makes a lot of sense if you then look at the stuff that I'm working on now, which is a lot of stuff that's um, either or both difficult, either difficult or inappropriate or difficult and inappropriate. Is there any particular book which changed you as a reader? I mean into an involved reader and uh, changed the way you looked at uh, literature? Brothers Karamazov is the one I always talk about because I think it changed. Uh, I, I read it because in Elementary Particles, Michel Welbeck says that the end of the book always makes him cry. So I thought, Michel Welbeck is such an evil, you know, pervert who it's um, a wonder what could make a guy like this cry 
So I read the book and, um, you know, the depth was shocking because American literature can be deep sometimes, but often not quite as deep as that. So I think that was a book that sort of almost was such a different world. It felt like science fiction, but at the same time was, I don't know, just something about it really struck a chord. I think a lot of people have similar experiences of Russian literature from the 19th century in particular. The sad thing about Russian literature is it was so good in the 19th century that it was okay in the 20th century. And that's why Vladimir Sorokin, who I work, translate, he's such a wonderful writer, but I think he's one of the last standing Russian greats. In general, I think Russian literature really suffered throughout the 20th century. And Vladimir actually, in his new novel, which hasn't even been announced yet, actually, but in his new novel, he compares Soviet literature to Special Olympics in which people intentionally cut off their own limbs and then compete. <laughs> but yeah, so Brothers Karamazov really struck a chord and opened the door to Russian literature and to, to really 19th century Russian literature. So I read all the Dostoevsky Doorstoppers, Anna Karenina, War and Peace. That's what made me study Russian literature, got me into Sorokin. But then Welbeck was also another one where I remember thinking that I couldn't believe a book, specifically the elementary particles, could be so upsetting, but also it felt very true in a way. I don't think it, that was probably a function of being a 12 or 13 year old boy reading this. I don't think if I read it, I think if I read it now, I would be a bit more hesitant to say it seems true, but it seemed, I think it was the first really philosophical work of fiction I'd read that what didn't feel cheap somehow. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, Brady Stanellis's American Psycho and Glamorama, because they just took stylization to another level. And it was really like Chuck Palahniuk is not really a stylistically interesting writer. So I'd read Fight Club and Choke, and it was very funny because I could tell my dad the plots. And he would go, oh, you shouldn't be reading that. But it wasn't like particularly well written. It's just short paragraphs that are like. Dick, dick, dick. Whereas Brady Stanellis is really a, a masterful stylist. Probably also House of Leaves by Mark Z. Danielewski. The interesting thing is he has done such strange and not very good projects since that it's taken the shine off of that book a little bit. He tried to write a 27 volume novel about a cat called The Familiar that he had to cancel because it was really expensive and the publisher didn't, it wasn't selling well. He wrote like a weird prose poem. So he's someone who, it's funny when someone writes one book that strikes a chord with so many people and then isn't really able to finish, follow that up. And of course, Stephen King, who at the time I, I loved, and then I thought, oh, he's a very bad writer, blah, blah, blah. I think he's a good writer in a certain way. Of course, his sentences are not amazing. But I think, for example, Knausgall, he really captures something of the texture of American reality. And I think I, for example, I really liked one of his newer books. I read Revival. It's like a kind of a Lovecraftian horror novel. It's not a great book. I think about his influence on my worldview, my perception of American life as constantly being ready to bring forth horror, I think is important maybe. And then the last one would probably be Haruki Murakami, who, again, is someone who I really can't stand how sniffy people are about him. I think he, you know, he is very repetitive. He's not like the most 
I don't think he's a misogynist. I don't think he represents women necessarily. He does boobs a lot. But I think he's also a very imaginative writer who brings a lot of people to the table. And I remember reading, I had just had mono and we were in Florida with my family and I was just really tired and was like lying by the pool or in bed reading all day. And I read the three books I brought way too quickly. So well, we, were there, we were there for 10 days and I was really a fast reader when I was a kid because I just didn't have a phone. I should probably not get rid, of, get rid of my phone now so I could read more like I did when I was a kid. But And we went to a bookstore in Florida and the woman working there recommended Kafka on the Shore, which is a crazy thing to recommend to 12-year-old, 13-year-old because it's pretty, and there's a lot of saucy stuff in there. <laughs> but I remember it very clearly. There's like an orange highlighter thing across the pages across the outer edge of the pages and my 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 copy i had when i was a kid has disappeared which is funny i don't know it's not important obviously i'm a little bit of a book fetishist but yeah so that was something that i think after that i read all of murakami's books and i think i really do still like something about him i'm excited to read his new book i'm probably gonna read it in german because it'll be out in german probably very soon and in english in four years the german translators are just amazingly fast but yeah and i really find it stupid that people are so dismissive of him he's not a perfect writer he's not one of my favorites anymore but i think he's got something very good about him and i think he taught me something about pacing by way of non-pacing his books are like being in a video game with no goal where you're just walking around in an open world i, I like that yeah that's the stuff that got me started See, to be able to speak and read is one thing, but uh, the ability to effectively translate uh, is uh, totally something else. The two in so many languages. Basically, I was born in Brussels. I grew up speaking, uh, and I had a French nanny. I spoke French when I was a baby, and my mom kept speaking French with me when I was little. That really helped being bilingual growing up. Then in America, of course, everyone speaks Spanish. Or not everyone, but there are a lot of Spanish speakers in America. So I learned Spanish in high school. There's, there are pretty good Spanish programs. In general, the foreign language programs at American high schools are not particularly good. But the Spanish programs are okay because there are just so many Spanish speakers. So I learned Spanish in high school. And then in college, I taught at a French immersion camp and a Spanish immersion camp slash school for little kids where... You're contractually obligated to speak to the kids in only French or Spanish. <laughs> and I, it's in northern Minnesota. Do you know, have you seen Fargo, the movie? Mm-hmm. So it's right there. The camp is right by that. <laughs> yeah. Northern North America. And then in college, for all the reasons we discussed, I started studying Russian literature because of Dostoevsky. And actually wanting to read Vladimir Sorokin because I had read about his work sounded very interesting. Most of it wasn't translated. Very little of it was translated, in fact. So he was like this holy grail. And I remember I was always like Googling Vladimir Sarokin translations, and none of them ever appeared. So I, and I always expected them to happen, but I read them in French. And a lot of them were translated into French, but not too many. So like the short stories were all missing. Some of the weirder novels. And there is some one of the translations is really screwed up into French. Marina's thirtieth love by Sorokin is meant to be 
it's meant to have this section at the end. So basically, it's a story of a woman who can't have orgasms with men. So she's a dissident lesbian. Then she eventually has sex with a f- factory party commissioner, I think. And this guy is like a real Soviet, really fine Soviet fellow. And he, she has an orgasm with him. And then she becomes a good Soviet citizen. And the last 200 pages are just word salad from Pravda, the newspaper. But the French translation cut that down to 10 pages. So I read that and I was like, it's a bit different. Yeah. If you want to see Vladimir be annoyed, bring that up with him and he'll go, oh, terrible. But so, yeah, I really wanted to read Sorokin in Russian. And I, that was one of my main goals, to be honest. I, I The translations, I wanted to read Dostoevsky in Russian, but the translations of, of Dostoevsky or Tolstoy are quite good. So I wasn't like, I didn't feel like I was missing out necessarily. I wouldn't have minded reading them in Russian, but I didn't, I wasn't like, I can't read them. I haven't read them. I really don't agree with people who have a negative view of translation. Some people are like, oh, I'm not really interested in reading translated works. It's not the original, blah, blah, blah. And I think what it's incredible the things we have access to that, that we wouldn't, if not for translation. It's even me who, I speak a lot of languages, but there's so many books I can read because of translations that otherwise I wouldn't be able to. Hungarian literature, Czech literature, whatever, there are tons, Chinese, Japanese. But, okay, so then after college, I went to Oxford, and I I met my wife at college, and she's Turkish, and she was living in Los Angeles, and I was living in Oxford. So I Turkish classes as a way of, I don't know, dealing with having a long distance relationship. And yeah, then I, and I'm, my Turkish is good, but there's such an incredible lack of language learning resources for Turkish. This is something that drives me absolutely insane. No one teaches Turkish well. There are no Turkish textbooks that are good. There are no, they're good up for like verb conjugations, right? They're good for level one. But level two, once the grammar gets complicated, there are no resources at all. So in American universities, you never find anyone who's able to learn Turkish past level two. So I've only been able to learn by spending a lot of time in the country because the programs don't teach the grammar. Anyways, so that, that brings us up to four. In my PhD program, I was inspired by Andre of The Untranslated to learn German and Italian because he was writing about all these books and he said, you just need to learn the languages and do it. And so the very good thing about being in a PhD program is that you can take, at an American university, you can take these intensive language classes that would normally cost like $20,000 for 10 hours a week. Me with undergrads learning uh, learning German or learning Italian. So I, I did those for three years and Italian, if you speak French and Spanish, Italian's not particularly hard. German also, I found, like, easy in a weird way. I, it's very similar to English. English has all the in, innate but now hidden Germanic tendencies of word order and stuff if you look at older English. But, yeah, so for the quality of the language, I think it's interesting what you say about how there's speaking and then there's translating. They're different skills in the sense that, so I speak all the languages. Some translators can't even speak languages they translate from at all. I can't speak every language I translate from. But for example, Italian especially, like I never, ever speak it. I just, because I don't really go to Italy. I don't have Italian friends. I would like to speak it more. 
my speaking is very rusty, but I read like very fluently. I read Italian, but, and for example, so I read Italian much faster and much more easily than I read Turkish, but I speak Turkish much more fluently, but I probably speak Turkish a little bit more strangely because the grammar is so different. So it's all this weird sort of constellation of things with languages. But for me, obviously, the main thing is reading in order to be able to translate. So that's the skill I've worked on the most. And there are certain people who, you know, who speak very well, but who can't read. Especially you'll see that among Europeans who spend a lot of time in other countries, but who aren't big readers. They might sound quite convincing in French over a dinner table conversation, but then you hand them Céline and they go, I can't read this. What do you? So, yeah, I think they're just different skills. And I think the big one I have is reading, which isn't to say I don't work on my speaking. I don't want to work on my speaking, but particularly with and also German is a problem because when you go to Germany and this everyone knows who is a German learner. When you go to Germany, basically everyone speaks perfect English. If you want to practice German, you really have to insist And the way I used to do this would be to say that I'm Russian. Not so good anymore, necessarily. <laughs> you want to pretend you don't speak English. But now I just insist. Go, if you don't mind, let's speak German. I want to practice. Next one is about uh, choice of books to translate. How do you find them? Because uh, uh, the kind of books that you choose to translate are uh, rare and uh, quote-unquote uh, not really mainstream stuff. The, so Sorokin, Sorokin is very mainstream, actually, interestingly. In Russia, people stop him in the street and ask to take pictures. He really is famous. He's on, um, he's on big TV shows. He's on a prank TV show in Russia. The Russian punk, they did a prank on him. Where he has a famous short story where a girl named Nastya is cooked and eaten by her family. And on the prank show... The idea of the prank is he's being interviewed for German TV. And a woman comes up to him and says she has the same name as Nastya from the story and wants to throw a cake in his face. But simultaneously, there's been another guy who says his name is also Vladimir Sorokin and throws the cake in the other guy's face. And Vladimir is going, my God, girl, it's me. I'm Vladimir. But the other guy is covered in cake and... It's very funny. Vladimir is very famous. He's, and I think he is reaching a degree of mainstream success in America, especially after Blue Lard comes out. I think he, he really will. Then for the other ones, I really just have to thank, not for all the other ones, but for most of the other ones, I just have to thank Andre of The Untranslated. So Andre is this Russian-speaking inhabitant of Eastern Europe, very mysterious fellow who is able to read in seven languages, I think, or eight, maybe. Is he for real? Yeah, he, he's as real as can be. And, and he reads these incredibly long books, each of which taken alone is like two gravity's rainbows. <laughs> and he writes reviews about them and proselytizes. He really gets other people interested in them. and got me interested in these books that I don't think I would have heard about otherwise because they're not particularly well. Some of them are well-known in their countries of origin. Some of them are not. So, yeah, it's just he, I have a lot to thank him for. Then for the, I'm doing Celine and Dostoevsky, who I, for, I guess I won't say the publisher, but I'm going to translate two books by them. 
Mm-hmm. And I wrote my master's dissertation on Selin and Dostoevsky. So I think that was pretty logical. So the Sorokin and Selin and Dostoevsky, okay, found those. But for the other ones, Andre, really, I owe him a big debt of gratitude for that. In your case, I suspect that once you really like a book, you will go ahead and translate it uh, so that you get to spend more time with it. Yes, that's very smart. That's exactly right. Actually, in fact, it's a little it's pretty much that, but it's a tiny bit more complicated. You read a book in a language that is not your best language, right? So I read a book in Russian, say. And then I go, "Oh, I really want this to exist in a way that I understand it fully." <laughs> so you take something that you don't understand 100% and you make it something that you do. That's the trick of translation, I think. You get to go. And that's why I like difficult books too, as you spend all this time with it to go deep and to understand every corner. And so by the end of the translation process, I'm going to know every single word in this book. I'll have looked up some of the same words 10 times because they're just bugging me. It's always I'll realize, oh, I've already looked this up because it just doesn't really work. But that's uh, I, you, it's filming every weird corner in a house for 20 hours. So you really get to know the, the book very well. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about uh, your uh, translation workflow. But uh, now I want to ask you about your uh, reading workflow. What is your reading workflow? I don't. It changes a lot, to be honest. Some, obviously, you read more slowly in foreign languages. So if I'm reading a hard book in a foreign language, it kind of screws up the workflow. But then right now I have a big list of books I'm reading with one of my professors from college who I have a book club with. And we're doing, it's going to be very fast because I'll tell you what we're reading this winter. Some rereads, some books we've already read. We're reading, so Melville, we're reading The Confidence Man, Pierre and Clarel. Then we're going to do a couple Conrads, Nostromo and Under Western Eyes. We're going to read Nathaniel Hawthorne's Complete Short Stories. We're going to read two very strange Henry James novels who people don't, that people don't generally read, The Awkward Age and The Princess Casamassima. Then we're going to reread The Recognitions and J.R. by Gaddis. Read V by Pynchon, Tom Jones, the famous picaresque. Then we're going to reread Ezra Pound's Cantos, Zukovsky's A, and then Zukovsky's book about Bottom as a way to then read Bottom's Dream. So we're going to hopefully get through all that six to seven, except for Bottom's Dream, six to seven months of reading. So I try to read 30, 40, 50 pages a day, basically. And then that's it. Yeah, not that. It adds up quickly. If you read 30 or 40, 50 pages, it's like finish a book quickly. If you're reading a thousand page book and you read 50 pages a day, it's 20 days. So it depends also. Like some books I'll read very quickly. Some books I get stuck in the mud with a little bit. So I was reading Thomas Mann. The Magic Mountain. I was reading that in German. And I like the style very much, but it's a very slow book. And I was just, I can't do this. <laughs> it's killing me. And I was just, I like the second half actually much more than the first, but the first half of the book is just so dull that I found myself, I don't know, dying. <laughs> so my, I, it changes a lot. During COVID, when I was living in New York, we were stuck inside all the time. I probably read 100 pages a day more. But now I've also, when you're translating a lot, I am not immune to the thing that I don't want to spend all my time reading after spending a long time translating. These books that you mentioned, some of them, I have not even heard those names. Once that I know, I know that uh, they are not uh, easy reads. 
how do you approach them as a reader things that you don't understand uh, do you google them i would say for english language books i pretty rarely look something up for foreign language books i like having a i like reading on my kindle because you can click on a word and you see the translation so that saves a lot of time it depends if i'm reading joyce for example i look up a lot of stuff when we're going to reread ezer pound's cantos i'm going to be looking up a ton of stuff but when i read melville i'm sure there'll be some words i don't know exactly because it's just 19th century english has all these weird little words i'm not 100% sure i'll look all of them up i i always think about this that in our native languages we have a bigger like how do i describe it axis of incomprehension or like a periphery of incomprehension which is to say we understand things that we don't understand in our native languages so we go okay i don't know this word but i i know it in foreign languages we see a word we don't know and we really don't know it so for example i can see old agriculture words or seafaring words or i don't know any kind of technical vocabulary in english i don't really need to look it up because i go i don't really know what it jib is but i know what a jib is i think i actually do know what a jib is so that's a bad example any word like that i go ah, i don't really know so i look up words when i think the work demands it when i just don't know a little word in like a 19th century novel where there's a very big technical description probably i'm not going to look it up <laughs> but maybe that's about the vocabulary part of it or terminology part of it yeah but uh, these books that you read uh, they are in the source language itself right yeah. not the translated ones so there will be lot of uh, cultural references too yeah i'll look stuff like that up of course if i don't know cultural practice or and i think i the languages i read i know france pretty well i don't think there's a cultural practice in france or continental europe i know pretty well russia i know very well I don't know Latin America all that well so that that would be more likely actually that I'd have to look stuff up but look stuff up spend time in the countries I've spent a lot of time in continental Europe I go to Germany a lot Yeah I don't know just try to spend time in the countries and understand the mentality too and spend time with the writer I think that's good if you can Yeah Normally getting a translation published itself is a very difficult task Yeah 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 but the kind of books you choose to translate uh, they pose a steeper challenge as uh, they are not uh, easily marketable uh, how do you navigate this i think that there's a big built-in audience it seems to me that there's a cult of readers that is already very excited for all the books that are about to come out all these very long books that andre writes about it seems to me that there there's a built-in audience that's just waiting for them if i were just coming out of the blue without doing Sorokin first without Andre without Twitter yeah maybe it would be hard but now like i have i know critics who are very excited to write about Schottenfall for example i know critics who are very excited to write about Horsinus Orca i know critics who are very excited to write about whatever the people are ready and they're waiting for this and i think that is because of Andre and then i got on the Andre train and then i developed an audience and then these people read about these books and got very excited and also as to the fact that fiction in english that's published is so boring these days it's so boring people and i know how it works because i have my own fiction the danger of talking about the marketplace is the worry that you're a bad writer and you're blaming the marketplace 
<laughs> but I think I'm a pretty good writer and I think I'm just a strange writer. And there's just no, being a strange writer, it freaks people out. Not to do with content, to do with style. If you stylize your writing at all, they don't really like difficult style or dense style. The only real space for that right now in the Anglophone world seems to be translated literature. I can't think of, Tarantino uses this expression grandfathered in to talk about why he's allowed to make violent movies. There's also the expression grandfathered in we can use to talk about why certain writers are allowed to write difficult books. If you're a young writer who wants to write difficult books and is trying to work with, I don't know, FSG or Simon & Schuster or Knopf, good, good luck. <laughs> really good luck. The idea of Don DeLillo, who wrote Americana, which is not that good of a book, uh, I don't think, and was published, and they were like, we'll stick with you. I think Don DeLillo wrote bad books for 10 years before he finally figured it out. But he was getting published because they were like, this is an interesting writer who we want to invest in. That's gone, except in translated literature, interestingly. People, if you go, oh, I've got this 1,000-page book with a 200-page sex scene, and it's plotless, and it's Hungarian, people will go, wonderful. But if you said it's American, people will go, nah, don't want it. No, thank you. So I think that's part of the reason I've gra gravitated toward translation is because it allows you to have the freedom to work on difficult things that might be a little bit transgressive. The point is, I think there's this built-in hunger for books like this. My friend, the critic Ryan Ruby, has this formulation about a different kinds of fiction. He thinks that everyone's idea of what fiction should be is a fantasy. There's no idea of fiction, right? There's no one fiction. So if I say Proust is the best, I don't think that, but Proust is the best. That's a fantasy, but I should be allowed my fantasy and I should be given a space in which to publish the fiction that responds to that fantasy. Everyone's vision of literature is a fantasy and they should be given a space to publish that and share that and whatever else. So I think that's really true. Everyone's vision of literature should be given a space. And I think that for some reason, difficult, crazy books are really denigrated a lot. And it's, oh, that's bro lit, blah, blah, blah. Okay, fair enough. But I think that there's a built-in audience for it. I'm not going to even say they're the best. I'm just going to say I like them. I think other people like them. Just give us a little space to, to do our thing. I'm not going to... And that's basically, I like ryan's thing because it just is a way of saying let's let everyone do their thing and we can all have a space but because there has been so little space afforded to books like this in the anglophone world for the last little while i think that there's a big hunger for it and i think readers like me are want books i would love it if fsg put out a book that was like no fsg has put out books like this they put out parallel stories they put out 2666 but the thing is, it's all literature and translation. It, it tends to be. That's so difficult and crazy. So, yes, I think there's a built-in market for this stuff. I think there's a built-in audience. And I think people want more of it, basically. Yeah. Sometimes even getting translation rights itself is uh, pretty difficult. For example, the one you wanted to translate, the novel Disconnected, the Turkish novel. Oh, man. So... There's still some question about whether this will happen. This book is a very... So let me give some background. It's the most famous Turkish novel of all time, I think, other than maybe some, something by Orhan Pamuk, you could argue, is more important. 
but I think this is probably the most significant. It's somewhere in between Ulysses and the Catcher in the Rye. It's difficult, like Ulysses. Yeah, it's difficult like Ulysses, but it has the emotional core of the Catcher in the Rye. And so basically, the book is dedicated to a woman named Saving Sadie, who is also a character in the book and was a muse to Ozatai when he was writing. And she got excited about this and did a translation. I guess when he was dying, he said to her that he wanted the book to come out in English. So she had gone to Oxford, I believe, and wanted to and then moved to London. She married an Englishman and translated the book. You can, of course, translate into your non-native language, but you have to be careful and you have to listen to native speakers when they tell you stuff about mm, correctness, right? Because style is one thing, but just it shouldn't be in a broken idiom of the language, unless it is in the original. So basically, the translation is in broken English, I guess one would say. There's, it might be of some historical importance, in a certain sense, because definitely she would be very good on details, right? She would be a wonderful person to have to ask about what was he thinking of here? What could this be referring to? But the style for a book that is constantly weaving between styles, you really need to be precise with your English. So she shot this translation around to a bunch of publishers and no one wanted it because it's problematic. Then she and her husband founded a vanity press to put out 200 copies to try to maybe get publishers interested that way. I'm not sure. And that didn't get publishers interested. And there was a whole, I was involved in maybe editing the book. I was asked to edit the book and I said, it should probably be a new translation, but okay. I'll co-translate maybe, or I'll edit. And this didn't, the edits weren't accepted. (laughs) It was a way to basically keep her name on the book and make them happy, but have me try to fix it stylistically. They didn't want that. Then my, I hooked up with the guy, who Ralph Hubble, my good friend, who's translated, done a brilliant translation. You should interview him too. He's done a brilliant translation of Wazatai's short stories. And they're coming out from NYRB next year, introduced by Merve Emre, Waiting for the Fear. He And so he and I hooked up and we decided that we wanted to really make a push to do this book because, and we had an offer from a very good publisher. And basically what happened is the day after the publisher emailed the agent of the estate, this Turkish academic started attacking us on Twitter (laughs) and writing all these crazy stories about us that weren't true, like attacking us very personally. And he was working for them. So it's very strange. And like, eventually, this exploded so much that there were stories in Turkish tabloids. Turkey, we it was quite a big thing. And everyone knows about it. Everyone knows the story in Turkey. It hasn't resolved yet. We haven't gotten a definitive answer. The thing is, we don't even really know who's making the decisions exactly. It's a very strange situation. We had all these meetings when we were in Istanbul this summer, Ralph and I did, and we could never figure out who was saying no. So we met with people and they said, no, they're saying no. Then we met with those people and they said, no, they're saying no. Then we met other people and they said, no, they're saying no. We'll see what happens with that. Right now, it seems to be on the rocks, but I'm hopeful. It's such a good opportunity. The offer from the publisher is not going away. So until they say a full no, I'm hopeful it will happen. I think we can. And the thing we were thinking about was having like an ebook, allowing the possibility for there to be an ebook of Sivian Sadie's translation. 
if people want to see what you did and judge it against ours, that's just fine. We're very confident in our translation. So yeah, I think we don't, like with Ryan Ruby's idea, there can be a space for every kind of what literature is. There can be a space for both translations and we don't, one doesn't need to kill the other, basically. You translated uh, most of uh, Vladimir Sorokin's works, the Russian author. Uh, he is into transgressive literature. Please talk about uh, transgressive literature. So transgressive literature is basically a limit testing within literature. It comes down from people like Rabelais in a certain sense, the Marquis de Sade, Georges Bataille, even in something like The Plum and the Golden Vase or Vaz, <laughs> which is Chinese porn fiction from the 17th century. It's just basically literature is a space for the unacceptable. Literature is a space for the aberrant. A lot of the books we talked about are transgressive fiction. Brady Stanellis, transgressive fiction. Chuck Palahniuk is bad transgressive fiction. Pierre Guillaume, the French writer who's like Finnegan's Way mixed with the Marquis de Sade. One of my good friends, Blake Butler, wrote this crazy book, 300 Million, which I read when I was in college that was blew my head off. And it's so cool. We're friends now. He's very transgressive. It's just like using literature as a space where you can write about whatever you want. Vladimir has a very famous thing he says, which is, it's not painful for the letters. It doesn't hurt the letters. So you can write whatever you want. It doesn't hurt the letters, right? So Therefore Hearts, for example, his novel is a very transgressive book. It's testing the limits of what Soviet ideology meant by way of bodies. So the theory of Vladimir's books is that you're taking the logosphere and pushing it down into bodies. So he has a funny parody of Dostoevsky and Blue Lard, where Dostoevsky's idea of unity is represented by people sewing themselves together, human unity. <laughs> uh, I think transgressive fiction can be a lot of things. I think people say the Marquis de Sade is also doing the same thing in his books, that he's parodying liberal ideas of the time with bodies. I think that's a little bit less tenable of a thesis in the sense that the Marquis de Sade was also not was a perv. Vladimir is like a family man. But So tr transgressive fiction is just, I would say, limit testing by way of extreme content. And it's also a tradition. A lot of French literature has a lot of transgressive literature. French people are such pervs. It's awesome. They like respectable books, which will be just like craziest sex thing you've ever read. And they're just all reading it very seriously. <laughs> the friend, yeah, French people are great for that. We're going to talk about him later, but Antonio Moresco's Songs of Chaos that I'm going to translate, highly transgressive, highly transgressive. So it can transgressive literature can be any number of things. It can also be, there are iterations of it I don't like very much. So I like transgressive literature that has a purpose. There's some transgressive literature, like there's this very famous guy, what's his name? Peter Sotos or something, where he just writes, it's like, it's awful. I don't know what to talk about. But stuff like that, where it just, oh, pedophilia or something, and there's no real purpose to it. I really don't like that. And that's not a fan of transgressive literature. That's just video nasties, like the back of the video store where they've got slasher films that are just like really horrible. I don't like books like that. Now, please introduce us to Vladimir Sorokin, the writer. Vladimir Sorokin is basically 
um, the most significant Russian writer living today. He has had a very interesting career. He started out as a transgressive writer parodying the Soviet Union with short stories, with a novel called The Norm, where the condition of Sovietude is is represented by people eating poop. <laughs> and he wrote all these short stories that are called binary bombs, which start out as very normal Soviet situations. And then in the second half of the stories, they go wrong and you're transported into an aberrant realm of violence. He wrote a very long novel called Raman, in which the protagonist named Raman, which means novel, but is also a name, it's 400 pages of a Turgenev novel. And then at the very end, Raman kills everyone with an axe for 200 pages, everyone in the book. So Vladimir started out as a very extreme writer, and then he's gradually calmed down. So after Their Poor Hearts, he had seven years off writing screenplays. And then he wrote Blue Lard, which is a little more shapely, though it is very extreme still. Then after Blue Lard, he wrote the Ice Trilogy, Day of the Aprichnik, The Blizzard, Telluria, Sugar Kremlin. And he gradually... People say that he's come to meet the reader. Okay, I'm not going to be so extreme anymore. However, his, his new novel is very extreme, I can say. And the responses it's been getting are very cool. If uh, somebody wants to read uh, Sorokin, where do we start? In fact, today morning I was looking up and uh, found a book called uh, Companion to Sorokin by Dirk Reifelman. Uh, have you come across that book? Yeah, I do. And I, I've, ta- I've corresponded with Dirk as well. That's a good thing to have for sure. That's a good thing to have for sure. The poet Bruce Andrews, uh, the famous language poet, also wrote a book about Sorokin that will hopefully be published soon. I would recommend, though, first reading the books themselves before you read any critical companions. I would recommend reading Horse Soup first, the novella that was published in N Plus One. I would recommend reading Horse Soup Then I would recommend reading Blue Lard. (laughs) Then I would recommend reading Red Pyramid, the short stories. Then I would recommend reading maybe Telluria, maybe Dispatches from the District Committee, Therefore Hearts, The Blizzard, Sugar Kremlin. I don't know. I think start with Horse Soup into Blue Lard and then go from there. Blue Lard and uh, Red Pyramid, uh, they're yet to come out, right? They're coming out in February, yeah, so very soon. The review copies, if any reviewers are listening to this, you can message me and we'll, we'll get you set up with, a, with an ARC. When it comes to the kind of uh, collaboration you have with uh, Sorokin, I read an article recently that you wrote, Cinematic Country. It's uh, very nicely written. I think even your first book, you almost uh, co-translated with uh, Sorokin. We're just great friends. We spend a lot of time together. We we just laugh a lot. I don't know. We It's hard to explain why. We just are a match. Obviously, there's something fateful about this whole thing. I emailed him right out of college, and it still worked out, which is incredible. Yeah, we just... It's hard to describe. You get a good sense of it in the article. We just hang out and do silly things. And get. We, we've we said it before that when we spend time together, we always end up in situations that feel a little bit like a British comic novel from the first half of the, of the 20th century. <laughs> so just like these little jams. And we always have a great sense of humor about everything. 
And I think a great thing in life is when you find people who you see the humor in the world with. And Vladimir and I just, when we're together, we see the humor in the world very much. And we just laugh at little things we can. Yeah. So I think he's an incredibly sweet man. And I think our rapport is built around just shared goals, shared interests, having spent a lot of time together, and then something ineffable that's just the luck of finding someone who you really like, basically. So how do you go about it when you start translating his book? He doesn't, he gives me comments on the finished version, but he doesn't, I wouldn't say he is particularly he doesn't send me a marked up version of the manuscript or anything. So I'll just, I just do 2000 words a day and translate them, do a few polishes, check it over and then send it to him and he reads. And then usually he'll have a few comments about specific vocab and say, Oh, this is more like this a little bit. But for the most part, he likes the work I do very much. And he's just excited to read his books in English. He likes reading them in English. Now we will talk about uh, your ongoing projects one by one. First one is, of course, uh, Blue Lord by Sorokin, which became famous for its uh, intimate scenes between Stalin and Khrushchev. This novel is very explicitly survey a survey of different Russian styles in literature and literary modes. You have classical Russian literature, you have a future which is based around Chinese, the language of which is based around Chinese words and neologisms. And then you have a Soviet past, but an alternate Soviet past where the notion of the people being free economically has been shifted into the realm of sexual affairs. So it's a very Sadian iteration of the, of the Soviet Union. All of it is like limit testing. I wrote about this in my stupid dissertation I don't care about. <laughs> <laughs> that basically by doing an alternate reality, Vladimir is um, testing what reality actually is. And there are other examples of books like this. So the novel Insatiability by Stanislav Vitkevich is quite similar to Blue Lard in that it presents an alternate reality to test what reality actually is. Gravity's Rainbow is doing something similar as well. For example, Khrushchev, who in reality was this very burly guy, burly bald guy with a big, who was famous for always eating corn at fairs, like a peasant, in the book become Count, who is obsessed with torturing young men to death, and who uh, is has long hair and wears a cloak. So it's like Hitler has long hair and shoots electricity from his hands. It's England that does the Holocaust, and England is nuked not Germany. Everything is like shifted around in this interesting way. And it's a way of, by seeing what reality is not, perhaps you see what reality actually is. That's what I would say. Horsena Sorca, the Italian novel. And that's, the, of course, the Latin name for a killer whale. And this book is an incredible Italian novel filled with neologisms and Sicilian dialect that sort of is an odyssey it's like the Odyssey about an Italian Navy man coming home during World War II, but then it has all these very aberrant, erotic, physiological moments, many of which involve the dead bodies of fish, a lot of weird sex stuff, which I love, of course. It's just very difficult. It's written in this, it's a bit like, I tend to think that English has a more direct linguistic thing than the, than the other languages I know because of Shakespeare and Pound. 
but you can have the word as object you pluck up from the page. There's, a, there's an earthiness to English as a literary language. This just might be my prejudice as a native English speaker. But it seems to me that English has this unique sort of presencing ability. But in Horsinus Orca, we have that as well. It's really a brilliant book. That should be announced soon, That I'm who I'm doing it for and when it will come out. I'm going to be working on it with Francesco Pacifico, who's a great writer and translator himself. And yeah, so that I'm very excited for. And that's one of the books that Andre discovered that is still famous in Italy. People know it. It's Italian with a lot of Sicilian, a lot of untranslated Sicilian. And Sicilian is quite different from Italian. So it's, that's the biggest challenge of translating that one. Yeah. Now, the next one is uh, Shat and Fro by Michael Lenz. So Schadenfroh is an incredible novel. I'd say the best German novel for a long time, <laughs> since The Magic Mountain, maybe, even though I was just complaining about The Magic Mountain. So Schadenfroh is a book about a man who is imprisoned in this metaphysical space by the ghost of his father called Schadenfroh. The man is named Nobody, and he goes on, and, and he's forced in this metaphysical prison to write the book that you're going to read. The book called Schattenfoe. He is writing as you read it in this prison. And as he writes, he goes on all these weird adventures to medieval Durin, to his childhood, to through books, through Hegel, through medieval executions. You're constantly traveling through paintings, World War II stuff. It's just, I have a very good draft of that. So I have a lot of beta readers, as we call them. And they, everyone is saying that this book is just going to be a huge phenomenon. They're so excited for it. I get messages every day asking to read it. And I've, unfortunately, I've, I've sent it to enough people for now. I, can't, I don't really respond to them because I'm like, oh, man. But people are really excited for this one. It's coming out in 2025. And the publisher, all these will be announced officially next month. Now, the French novel by writer Céline Guignol's Band. Interestingly, you also wrote a paper comparing Celine and Dostoevsky. Yes, I wrote my master's thesis on it. And it's actually a published article in the Oxford Research Encyclopedia, which is very funny that I have a published article in the Oxford Research Encyclopedia. So Guignol's Band is Celine's famous London novel. It is two parts. And now both parts have been translated before by two different translators and not very well, to be honest. And we're going to do it in one volume. I'm going to translate it. And I'm going to work with the great British writer, Ian Sinclair, where I'm just going to give him a Mad Libs, where I'm going to say, underline certain words and say, hey, here we could use something like this. What do you think? And that's also going to be announced next month. I'm really excited for that one. I think it's Celine's best book, maybe. Uh, but it's really a good one. And I think it's going to be a great opportunity to show the true Celine. I like the Mannheim translations, but I think the advantage of doing a retranslation is you can really accelerate the extremity and push it. And I think there will be people will read it and go, wow, this is Celine we haven't heard before. This is a really crazy new Celine. And with Ian on board, Ian is one of my favorite writers, one of the great living English language stylists. That is really going to be a big one. I've, and I'm doing some lectures in Paris about it next spring, actually. Antonio Moresco's uh, Games of Eternity trilogy. Yeah, so basically this is... Antonio Moresco is probably the great, greatest Italian writer, I think, of the last hundred years. And this trilogy is 
autofiction that becomes Sadian metaphysics. So it talks about his time spent in a monastery as a revolutionary, and then his writer's block and his inability to get published becomes the staging grounds for this Brian De Palma-directed, Bellatar simultaneously directing porno slasher insanity that's just so indescribably insane that then gradually becomes like a um, Dante Paradiso time-suspended ending. It is one of the most incredible works of literature I've ever read, and it's going to be just that's going to change it's going to blow people's minds i think very much so i'm really excited for that one that's i think what's going to it'll be again all this is going to be announced next month but this one is coming i think after shot and full that's what that's the one i'm going to be working on next yeah. now before we get on to the paragraphs uh, from blue lad um, how do you evaluate a translation it's hard, right? So on the one hand, you should just be evaluating based on how good it is, right? Um, and on the other hand, you should probably be evaluating based on, I don't know, you should be evaluating based on how accurate it is. But if you don't know the foreign language, you can't tell how accurate it is. So you end up just evaluating it based on how good it is or how good the style is, right? So I think on the one hand... For me, it's like the Benjamin idea. Every work of translation represents a strange afterlife for a work of literature, and it needs to just be good. It's like a cover version, but it just needs to be good unto itself. On the other hand, it should be accurate, and if you, if I speak the foreign language, I can judge that. But then on the other hand, I'm not really inclined to read a translation in any of the other languages from any of the languages I speak. So four books that I'm reading in translation with no access to the original, I just judge it based on quality of style, to be honest. <laughs> and what other people say, I, I take into account. Yeah. Who are your favorite uh, translators? My favorite translators are, I think the best translator who I've ever read is probably this guy who translated Astrophobia the Sasha Sakalok, and he translated a bunch of other stuff too. And Michael Henry Heim. He, and he translated from eight languages, incredible translator. Everything he translates is gold. And Astrophobia, that, that translation is just unbelievably good. Just unbelievably good. Ralph Mannheim, of course, is also a hero. I can't believe what a good translator Ralph Mannheim was. Even though his Salines are a little iffy sometimes, I think he's still an incredibly good translator. I've got to hand it to Constance Garnett, even though I don't always love her translations. She's the OG, so to speak. She did so much for the profession. John Woods, or John Woods, I think, or John E. Woods, the guy who translated Thomas Mann, recently passed away and also translated, also translated Arno Schmitz, who I'm not crazy about as a writer, but the translations are just unbelievably good. Yeah, I think those are some of my favorites, more or less. Michael Henry Heim, he really was an incredible guy, an incredible character. There are a lot of funny stories about him as well. Uh, and I also really the translations of Lajlo Krasnohorkai done by George Sirtis. I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce it, but his translations of Satin Tango, The Melancholy of Resistance, they're really incredible. And yeah, I think that's more or less it. 
Finally, please read a paragraph from Sorokin's Blue Lord. Uh, first in Russian and uh, then in English, please. Voila, this is Russian first. Тяжелый мальчик мой, нежная сволочь, божественный и мерзкий топ-директ. Вспоминать тебя адское дело, рыб славы. Это тяжело в прямом смысле слова. И опасно для снов, для элгармонии, для протоплазмы, для скантхи, для моего виту. Еще сильнее, когда садился в трафик, начал вспоминать твои ребра, светящиеся сквозь кожу, твое родимое пятно монах, твое безвкусное тату-право, твои серые волосы, твои тайные цинцы, твой грязный щепот поцелуй меня в звезды. That's the Russian. Then the English. Hello, mon petit. My heavy little boy, my tender bastard, my divine and vile top direct. Remembering you, such infernal business, Ripslaove, is heavy in the strictest sense of the term. And dangerous, too, for sleep, for El Harmony, for the protoplasm, for the Sandhas, for my V2. Back in Sydney, sitting in traffic, I first started to remember. Your ribs glowing beneath your skin, your monk birthmark, your tasteless tattoo pro, your gray hair, your mysterious Jinji, your dirty whisper, kiss me on the stars, but no. There we are. <laughs> Crazy. Thank you. Thank you very much, Max. It's been such an enjoyable one hour or so. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure.